0: This evening, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, verses thirteen and fourteen. And I want to talk to you this evening about the security of the believer. We're making our way through Ephesians together. Of course, this is one of Paul's later later letters that he wrote, written in the. Uh, in the yeah, the Schofield Bible has a date on the page. I forgotten what it is. I want to say it's 64 A.D. Carol, you've got a school full by right? 64, AD. 64 A.D. So it's one of his, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the prison epistles, but my memory is failing me. The security of the believer. One of the most precious and misunderstood teachings of the New Testament is the security of the believer or the assurance of one's own personal salvation. Security as a Christian And the assurance that you are a Christian is part of the experience of grace. The experience of God's grace. When a person comes to faith in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has regenerated them and given them a life. A new life. An eternal life. And the evidences of this new life are repentance and faith and a desire for the things of God. That's the new birth. The new birth, right? Now, and that's something you experience. You know, all, the, all the sisters here who've had children, having a baby was an experience. Something that's memorable, notable, and uh, the new birth is, is the same way. It's something real that takes place that happens to a person. And often, in real conversions, when a person is really born again, the assurance that the salvation really is there the certainty that they are saved sometimes comes later. Sometimes comes later. Sometimes it comes very soon. Sometimes it's immediate, but sometimes it takes a while. And you may have known people. You may be one of those people who made a profession of faith in Christ. You trusted Christ as your Savior. You called upon Him, asked Him to save you. But then later on, you doubted your salvation. You begin to wonder. There's some, there's, there's, there's some things that come up with that. Uh, I guess the main thing would be, first of all, it could seem too good to be true. Did putting my faith in Jesus really put me in a proper standing with God for all eternity? Did that really work? Did it it really happen? And that's what I want to talk to you about, is that assurance that something has really taken place. Now, one of the reasons why assurance of the believer is misunderstood is because of what I'm calling tonight high-speed evangelism. High-speed evangelism. Uh, I talked to a guy in Texas one time, he was a pastor, not far from where I was at, and uh, he showed up for our church on a Sunday night, he had retired, and he was going to do itinerant preaching, and he was just trying to get around and see where he could be used, and uh, we were talking before the service, and he said, Terry, he said, I, he said, I led a guy to the Lord just a few minutes ago, and I said, really? He said, yeah, the 10-year-old kid, he was standing on a corner, I walked up to him and said, uh, hey, are you a Christian, are you saved, are you going to heaven? And the kid's like, i, I never even heard of heaven. And he said, I could see his, he said, but I'm waiting on my mom, she's right over there. His mom was walking towards us. He said, I knew I didn't have much time. He said, so, and if it takes more than two or three minutes to get a person born again, then you know, you really don't need much time. And he got the kid to make a profession of faith in just a few minutes before his mother got there. Because if mama got there, guess what mama would have said? Strange man, why are you bothering my kid? <laughs> get away from my kid. So in the, so that's, that's a sample of high-speed evangelism. Just this, this push, 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 push. Got to get it done. Got to get it done. Because that kind of evangelism is, is, uh, is unscriptural because it's, it's so much hurrying. Jesus describes salvation as the new birth. And the new birth is something that uh, it doesn't happen overnight. Life is there. Conception is there at the beginning. But then the full blossom of life comes a little bit later. So high-speed evangelism... This idea that we can get people saved in just a few minutes if we get them to say the right words after us. I'm calling it high-speed evangelism. That kind of thing can cause false converts. False converts. I have no idea who that little kid was that, that guy talked to. I have no idea. And uh, did that kid, the question I would think in my mind, I've thought about it later, is did that kid really become a Christian? That's a good question. Did he become a Christian? I don't know. I don't know but high-speed evangelism can create false converts because people just want you to leave them alone sometimes. And all this pressure, all this pressure. When I was, uh, you know, I guess kind of in the world Ballard and I grew up in, uh, most of your evangelistic efforts were with strangers, people you'd never see again. you knock, knock on their door, tell them the gospel, and you'd never see them again. And those, those are very easy things to do. It's very easy for me. It's easier for me to go talk to a stranger and asking if they know the Lord, if they're going to go to heaven, than it is for me to talk to one of my friends, somebody I know. Because when I start talking about the gospel and about Jesus, the stakes seem a lot higher. Because what if, what if, what if I make them mad? What if they get angry at me and say, I don't want to talk anymore! Don't hassle me! And that's a, that's a real likelihood. You could be talking to someone you love very much and try to bring up the gospel, and they just get crazy and say, I don't want to talk about that. Quit preaching to me. Don't beat me up about it. And what you have to do is you have to do exactly what they just asked you to do. Leave them alone. Stop stop beating them up about it. But the longer you know a person, the deeper your relationship gets with the person, the greater the opportunity to talk to them about the gospel. You're spending time with them. You're showing them that you love them and you care about them, and it's, it's a much longer process. It's much more intentional. It's much more relational. Because when that person knows that you care about them, that, they're your, they're, that they are your friend or loved one, and then you bring up the gospel, you can say to them, sincerely, I'm very concerned about you. And that's why I'm saying this to you. I'm very concerned. The relationship is, is important. High-speed evangelism has caused a lot of false converts, which causes security of the believer to be misunderstood. John R. Rice, in his writings on evangelism would say that after you lead someone to faith in christ then you must give them assurance give them assurance and the way it would work would say you'd ask a person to trust in christ and you may lead them into a prayer dear lord i know i'm a sinner please come in my heart and save me forgive my sins take me to heaven someday amen you get a person to pray a prayer like that then you would say to that person did you mean that prayer and they would say yes i meant that prayer and then you would say okay You go back to Romans 10, 13 and say, if you called on Jesus, then Jesus saved you. And you give them assurance. You're putting the assurance in what they said and the sincerity of their heart. But assurance does not work that way. You cannot find that kind of teaching about assurance in the New Testament. But I'm gonna show you tonight, Lord willing, what the Bible says about assurance, the security of the believer. Now, I've been a Christian Since I was about 15 years of age. And I can say that of all the things. That have brought me the most comfort. In my life as a Christian. Is security as a believer. Because as a Christian. I have really done things. That I shouldn't have done. As a Christian. I've failed the Lord more times than I would like to admit. But he's never cast me out. He's never chunked me away. He's kept me. I'm secure in Christ. My standing with God is in Christ. So, in verses one to twelve of this chapter, just for by way of review, Paul is telling the Ephesians and us that God has, by His own purpose and power, according to His own good pleasure ordained before the world was made to save sinners and to save them through Jesus Christ in no other way. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. Only Jesus can save you. And only through faith in Jesus can you be saved, not through anything else. It's through Christ and Christ alone. And that's what Paul says in verses 1 to 12. But in verse number 12, Paul says something interesting. Paul says that I myself have also trusted in Christ. Look at the verse, look at verse 12. That we, Paul's talking about himself here, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. Paul himself has believed the message of the gospel. He himself is trusting in Jesus. Now this is important because of Paul's stature. Paul is an apostle. There are two kinds of apostles in the New Testament, and I'm going to use my own terminology here. There are apostles, and then there are super-apostles. When I say super-apostles, I mean like the first 12 who had the power to do miracles. There are other apostles that that were sent. You can look at Acts 14, 14 and see that. But this, Paul's a super-apostle. It is Paul who has given to us through the Holy Spirit's work in him most of the New Testament. 13, if you count Hebrews, no, it's 14th if you count Hebrews, 14 books of the New Testament. That's over half the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. And he has high stature in Christianity. You can't go to a Christian church and not hear the name Paul on a Sunday. I mean, it's going to come up. Always, or his writings are always mentioned. And what Paul says to the Ephesians is that just like you, I too have trusted in Jesus. Paul is telling in verse 13, he is telling the Ephesians that he and they share their faith. They are both believing in Jesus. They share in that. Paul, in my opinion here, is carefully showing them that while he himself is a special messenger and worker of God, he himself has come to God by faith in Christ. Jude says it like this, he calls salvation the common faith. If you're a Christian, there's something that we all believe in common. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, is that great passage where Paul says, I have trusted in Christ, and I am the chiefest of sinners. And Paul's telling the Ephesians, I have also trusted in Jesus. You have trusted in Christ. I have trusted in Christ. The only way we can be reconciled to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy what he is in verses 12 and 15 of chapter 1 to encourage Timothy. Because sometimes you can look at another Christian and go, I'm not not as good a Christian as they are. I'm not as sweet as they are. I'm always saying the wrong thing. I don't have the faith that they have. We look at other people and we say, if I was only as great a Christian as they are, and here's Timothy, who's worked right beside Paul all the time. And Timothy doesn't seem to be quite as used as Paul. He knows his own imperfections, but Paul writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, I'm just a sinner, just like you. I'm not without Christ, I'm nothing." I am nothing. He's encouraging Timothy in that statement there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, as wonderful as he is, as gifted as he is, he never forgets that he is what he is by the grace of God. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. (laughs) Same for you. By the grace of God, you are what you are. By God's grace. What is grace? It's God's favor. Favor you don't deserve. By God's grace, you are what you are. Now, in verse 13 here. Chapter Ephesians 1, verse 13. In the last part of it, Paul says here. Look, look at the reading. I'll, I'll read it again. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also... After that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. Verse 14 could read like this, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Paul says here that those who trust in Christ, after hearing the word of truth, after hearing the gospel, there is a seal given to those who believe. It's a mark of sorts. Uh, this, this word could be translated, you were stamped with the Holy Spirit of promise. It means there's something has been given to you that says you belong to God. And it is this sealing that gives us assurance or security. And Paul says this seal is the Holy Spirit. The seal is is the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean exactly? Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Does it mean we are sealed up inside of the Holy Spirit? Or like inside a force field, a Holy Spirit force field, or a bubble? Are we sealed up inside of? No. It means that we are connected to Him. The seal here, in Paul's day, important documents were sealed as a security measure against tampering. Now, the way we do it today is we lick the glue on the envelope and seal it. And if you really want your envelope to stay closed, what's the second step you do? Tape. <laughs> and if you're really if you're really super concerned about it, you won't use Scotch tape, you'll use packing tape. And you'll put that clear Scotch you'll you'll put it on there two or three times and you want that thing to stay secure. And on Paul's day, they would have a document that they wanted no one else to read, no one else to know what was in it. And they would take a bit of wax, melt it with a a candle, smear it on there. And then they would take a a stamp of some kind or a ring that had uh, an impression in it, an engraving, and they would smash it down. Remember in the book of Revelation where it talks about the book with seven seals. Of course, it's a scroll with seven seals. And all those seals, the seven seals are sealed and they cannot be opened except by Jesus This is something for you to think about in the future. All of the horrible, scary things that are going to happen in this world in the last day, when God destroys this world, it's going to happen because Jesus opens the seals. In Revelation, he is the Lamb of God who is angry. That's Revelation chapter 6. Men will cry out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But this sealing here Paul's talking about is is it's using a, a metaphor of, of sorts. Telling us that we are safe, we are secure in Christ because of the Holy Spirit. The seal, the mark is the Holy Spirit. But what did it mean to the Ephesians? What did it mean to them? Well, the Ephesian Christians, they they had some idea already about the Holy Spirit. Now keep this in mind, friends. You and I, we live in a Christian world. We live in a world <laughs> We live in a Christian world. We live in a world that's been heavily influenced by Christianity. Heavily influenced. So influenced by Christianity that there's a lot of things that we just take for granted. Like we know about the Holy Spirit, we know about Easter. What, what's, what's the holiday that comes right before Easter that there's always fighting about if, they're gonna, if, they're gonna, if your people are going to be off work or businesses closed? Good Friday. All across, the, it's on the calendar. Good Friday. Palm Sunday, Easter. We live in a world that's been influenced by Christianity in a big way, in a huge way. But in the Ephesian world, when the Ephesians first heard the gospel, Christianity was brand new, brand new to them. So what did they know? Now, the the Ephesians, they knew already. This is about 20 years after Paul had first come to Ephesus when this letter was written. The Ephesians, they knew about the Holy Spirit. Remember Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 where Paul talks to them about the Holy Spirit and they see the works of the Holy Spirit. They knew something about the Holy Spirit. And I assume that because these people are Christians, Paul calls them that in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1, I assume that they know that the Holy Spirit is with them. That they know it. And I assume tonight that if you're here and you're a Christian that you know the Holy Spirit's with you not in an academic sense or an intellectual sense, but that you actually know it spiritually, experientially, in your feels, that you know He is with you. And if you don't know that, I would think about why that is. If you don't feel, sense, have some awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence, I would want to know why you don't, because the Bible talks about it all the time. I'm going to try to explain it to you. So the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, he sets up house, and things are not the same. He has taken up residence inside the Christian, and he started moving the furniture around to suit himself. If If I come into your house... And I go into your living room and you say make yourself at home, what does that what does that mean at your house? It means take your shoes off, eat some candy on the coffee table. It might mean ask for anything you want. It might not mean go go through the refrigerator, <laughs> but it probably means if you use the bathroom, wash your hands, just make yourself comfortable. Well, when the Holy Spirit comes but if I start moving the furniture around, that'd probably irritate you, wouldn't it? Probably make you mad. What are you doing? My chair's always been there. You know, at our house, if you move a chair, there's these uh, divots in the carpet that are, you know, five feet deep. (laughs) Because Because we never move them except for vacuuming day, you know. Of course, I never vacuum. That's somebody else. Somebody else does that. But when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he starts setting things up differently. You see, when a person becomes a Christian, they're regenerated. They're made alive and they come to know something about themselves. And it's worth remembering, it's worth restating that we come to faith in Christ because the Holy Spirit has regenerated us or made us alive. We come to faith in Christ because he has given us this quickening, given us this new birth. Now for the individual who is a Christian, in the process of becoming a Christian, I'll use that word carefully, process, for the individual this quickening seems to be experienced in a series of realizations or surprises. Realizations or surprises. And here, 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 I'll give you one, two, three, four, four of these, okay? Four realizations. First of all, The Holy Spirit causes you to know something about your own sinfulness. Sinfulness. Now, have you ever done something that you shouldn't have, and your mom or dad used their ability to make you feel really guilty and bad? (laughs) Used guilt and run you through the ringer, and made you feel just awful about it? Well, what's 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 your reaction to that after they get done making you feel bad? Anger. You get mad because you know they manipulated you. You think you go away and you think about it and you get mad. Well, how can they say it to me? You get all work, worked up about it because they used guilt and just put the screws to you. You felt bad in the moment, but when you got away, when you got away from them, you start thinking about it. And you thought, why do they got be why why they got to be so cranky? Why do they got to be that way? What's going on with them? Well, when the Holy Spirit shows you your sinfulness, you don't get mad about it. You don't disagree with them. You realize, oh my goodness, I am really a mess here. I am really rotten. It's a realization. It's a an epiphany. A eureka moment, a light bulb moment. And then that's followed by another realization that's called dissatisfaction, that you're dissatisfied with you, the way you are. And you, you don't like it anymore. You don't want to be that way. You realize you're wrong. Dissatisfaction. And a, a third would be a different attitude about God and Jesus. This is from the book of Acts. Repentance toward God. There's a new attitude about God and Jesus. Those people who grow up in Christian homes, if they don't become Christians at a, at a young age, when they get to be teenager and young adult, man, they, they really chafe at God and Christianity. They, re, they really get upset about it. Because it, it seems so dumb so useless because they're being drugged to church right and because they're the chill children in a christian family they they get made to do all kinds of christian behavior they get made to sing in the choir they get made to pass out tracts they get made to you know help with the Sunday school class they may so they may get called on to pray to not pray but to help read scripture in a class and and you know, they're going through all the Christian externals, but they're not Christians, and it makes them angry because they're not Christians. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates, there's a, there's a, there's a word, there's a flip, it, there's a. There's a uh, the lights come on, and it's different. You know what I'm saying? Have you lived through that yourself? Have you been through the realizations that, man, I am a wicked mess and I don't like it and I want to be cleansed and, and you have a new view of God where you don't see God as big, mean, nasty anymore trying to make you un- upset. You see Him as the Heavenly Father who has sent Jesus, the precious Savior. And Jesus is no longer an annoying person who always does the right thing. You see him as the Lord who died for you who shed His blood for you. And then there's the fourth thing. These these are realizations. The fourth realization is there is this desire to believe the gospel. That you appropriate that for yourself. You say, yes, I need to trust in Jesus. I need to believe the gospel for myself. And I want to be clean. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes to us, he, He takes up residence. And He starts to show us these realizations. Now, how long does it take for that to take place from his entrance to faith? There I don't know. It varies person to person. You could have come in here tonight unsaved, unregenerate and go through all those phases in one 55-minute sermon. Don't worry, it won't be 55 minutes. <laughs> it you could you could you it could begin tonight and culminate in your faith. Next Sunday, there's, 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 no, there's no timeline given. That's what happens. People have to go through this thinking, thinking about it, our realizations, understand this is what I am, this is what I need. Mean. That's the problem with high-speed evangelism. nobody gets a chance to think about. It. Now have you ever made it made a snap decision and regretted it right after. <laughs> You need time to think. We're thinking people. We're cognitive. So in verses 13 and 14 here, it looks like Paul's main point, in my opinion, is just to say that the presence of the Holy Spirit within you is the guarantee of your redemption. This is something that you know you have, and because you have it, you're saved forever. Now Paul says here, that the Spirit will be with us until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Holy Spirit will be with us until the purchase, the redemption of the purchased possession. What does that mean? We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's the price is paid. Price is paid. But the experience of redemption is, is still in the future. In the future, redemption is connected to the redemption of the body, of the body. Because even though you're here tonight and you're saved, if your heart quits beating, what's going to happen to your body? We're going to go and lay it to rest. It's going to be in the ground. That's Romans eight twenty three. Then Ephesians four thirty. Paul talks about the day of redemption as being yet in the future. That's the resurrection. Redemption is connected to possession. Possession. We will be received into God's glorious presence bodily. Let me say this carefully. If your soul is in heaven and your body is here, are you complete? You're not. It's because you have You're a dichotomy. You have two parts. You have a body and soul and spirit. You're two parts. You are born. You have two parts. You got a body. You got a soul and spirit. I'm saying soul and spirit are fused like like they're fused. (laughs) (laughs) Like they're glued together. You count them as one. So when you die, when your body dies, your soul goes to be with God. But your body stays here. And what has God said is going to happen in the future? There's going to be a what? A resurrection. And what's going to come out of the ground? Your body and your soul back together, and you're complete again. We are going to be with Him bodily in the resurrection. Now, if you die tonight, or if I die tonight, my soul goes to be with Jesus. My soul goes to be with God. Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But my body won't go. My body won't go. It'll go down here somewhere. And that's where it'll be. All the people who are in heaven tonight are there. Their souls are there. But their bodies are not. But in the resurrection, in the last day, when Jesus returns and gives the shout, rise up, my beloved. All the bodies will rise, changed, made glorious, joined to the soul, and then we get to be with Him for all eternity in a bodily form, which means that the heaven, which means that the heaven that the soul people are enjoying is good, right? But it's going to be even better when they can enjoy it in their body. It's better. Good now, but going to get better. And the opposite is true for people who are in hell tonight. If a person dies without Christ, their, their soul goes to hell, a place of conscious torment. And they're going to be resurrected too and rejoined to their bodies. And they're going to go to the lake of fire, which is the second death. So hell is bad, right? The lake of fire is worse. Heaven is good for the soul. But heaven in the body with the soul is better. You see what I'm saying? So this redemption, Paul, the Holy Spirit is with us until the redemption of the purchased possession God did not buy just part of you. He didn't purchase just part of you. He purchased all of you. You belong to him completely. And in the resurrection, there's this possession. We'll be received into God's glorious presence bodily after the resurrection. That's the redemption of the body. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8. And it's worth noting that this, that means that our identity as creations of God It's tied to our bodies. Because that body is going to live again, both for the unregenerate and the regenerate. It's connected. So, this is my opinion. I don't think Paul bears this out. So how you're going to be known in your resurrected body is how you're known now. Same body. Same general. Is it going to be exactly the same (laughs) Well, it won't be having sin. Will it be flawed and imperfect? No. Just like it's not flawed and imperfect now. <laughs> you're how God made you to be, right? You're how God made you to be. So in the glory realm, you'll be known as you're known. That's my, that's my view of that. You'll we'll be known. So when I get to heaven, and I'm walking down the streets of glory, and I see Valerie, I'll know, Hey, I know you. Valerie. And she'll say, who are you? <laughs> when I get to heaven, if I see you there, I'll know it's you. It's like you'll know it's me. And I reckon we'll know everybody when we get to heaven. That'd be a trip, wouldn't it? I've, ne- I've never met some of you folks as a other family who are Christians or have passed on the glory. But up there, I'll know it'd be, be a great time. Well, I probably seem to stop because I got one more page of notes, but I'm just going to put a name into it. All in favor? Say amen. <laughs> let's, let's, let's pray together. And then, uh, we Father, we come before you tonight with fresh in our mind what Paul says here about the security of the believer that we're secure. You've given us the Holy Spirit, He's going to be with us. Father I didn't didn't even get to it we're we're bearing he's bearing witness with our spirit we know we belong to you because the Holy Spirit is there he's there and Father I pray that you would help us to to appreciate that as we know he's there we know you hear us You hear our prayers and Father we lift up to you tonight Mary's friend who fell and cut her head that you would be with her. I pray that you be with Mary and all these people that she knows at her work and customers that you use her as you minister, Lord, to people. Be with the Wilkinsons as they make a move, that you would bless them and help them, Lord, and meet their needs and help them to have a great, a great experience and be with their family, Father. Be with all the people who are getting the vaccines, Lord, and vaccinations and that you help everybody to. Not have complications from it. it. Should be with those who are given the shots, the people that should keep them safe. I pray it should be with the castners It should help them as they change their ministry, Lord, and come back to the states. Help them be able to make that transition okay. It be with for the South and his wife as they get ready to go to Cambodia. I pray you help them. The thought of going to Cambodia for me, Lord, is just. That's way out there to think about going to a very, very, very different culture, very different language. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help them. Give them the grace they need and strength. I pray that you'd be with the brothers and sisters who are here tonight who are carrying big burdens on their back, that you would help them increase our faith, help us to be more more thoughtful about the people we know and what they need to know about Jesus. Help us we pray, Heavenly Father, in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's stand together. You get stood up, God bless you.